the National Archives podcast series, Upstairs and Downstairs in the Royal Household, presented by Vanessa Carr. Thank you very much, Dave. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to what I hope is an instructive and interesting talk. So, upstairs and downstairs in the Royal Household, what records are we talking about here? Well, with regard to the above stairs, we're talking about the Lord Chamberlain's department. Roughly records from 1660 to 1901, but as any users of the archives know that that's a work of light fiction. In fact, they go back to somewhere around about 1500 up to 1920, but the vast majority here, and you'll probably see the significance of those dates. That's the accession of Charles II to the death of Queen Victoria. Below stairs was the domain of the Lord Steward's Department. Records 1698 to 1870, largely, though again with a lot of overlaps either side. Records before 1698 were almost entirely lost, in fact, because there was um, a fire or something. Records often uh, fell foul of. I'll mention broad series. Obviously, this this is an awful lot to cover in about an hour. I can only do an overview, mention, I say, broad series, most of which don't span the whole period by any means. Obviously, with a period like that, you're talking about a huge number of changes in any administration. And for the details, as ever, you would need to look at the online catalogue. For main series, though, I will be attaching some dates. So... Before I go into the details of what these departments were and the records they held, there are, again, as ever, a lot of interrelated series of records. The medieval records, by and large, are in the Exchequer accounts in E101, which is um, under various cuts, one of which is wardrobe and household, and I'll be saying a few minutes a little bit more about the wardrobe. Finance records, and you'll find an awful lot of this is connected with finance, uh, are also in Exchequer, the Audit Office and the Treasury, which suggests, as indeed is the case, that a lot of the administration and record-keeping here was designed to keep some sort of um, control on audit of uh, royal households' expenditure. Palace's Royal Parks and Gardens... There is a lot of information with the uh, slightly more modern period under the Ministry of Works and its successors under the, the Work Letter Code. Um, The Privy Council, because it was a body that was very much close to the monarch and the monarch's government, um, has a lot of records uh, which are related, um, particularly on the subject of special events, which is something else that I will say a little bit um, more on later. For later records, it's Royal Archives at Windsor that you need to refer to. Um, In fact, the records in the Royal Archives start more or less around the reign of George III, but up until they took over this whole record-keeping, they tend to be more personal and informal. So some general points about the records. They are mostly in English, though inevitably with the early ones. Some of them are in Latin. A lot are in complete series, and I've already mentioned that they also, series are quite sort of date-limited in some cases, and others will duplicate each other with varying degrees of detail. So one source, say, might give a total sum for something, say, to be paid for goods or services. Another will itemise this in great detail. And one of the things that I hope I managed to convey is the huge amount of detail um, that there, there often is in these records. That will all depend on their purpose within the administration, obviously and, as I say, quite a lot of um, overlapping and gaps as well. 
Each of the letter codes has got a miscellaneous series, um, something dear to the heart of uh, most archivists, dear old miscellanea. Now, lack of indexing is a bit of a problem when you're trying to find your way around these records. An awful lot of them are in ledger or account book form, and very often such books will have um, an index of some sort, but most of these don't have. Or if they do, they tend to be a subject-based index. So say we're talking um, about somebody looking for an ancestor among the royal household, and say you're looking for a tailor who is thought to have produced livery for the royal household. Livery, by the way, is a word that turns up quite a lot, and we tend to associate it with a uniform now, but in fact it's much broader than that. It's really provision of some sort, often in the form of money for both food and clothing. So you may, you may be looking for this tailor who provides livery, but perhaps you'll find him indexed under jackets or something like that. So uh, you've got to do um, a little bit of inventive searching around. The other thing is technical, I've called it in quotes, but technical information, because as we'll see, a lot of these records are about textiles, furnishing, clothing for the Lord Chamberlain's department and food and drink with the Lord Steward's department. So, who are these records useful for? Well, genealogists, those who have royal officials or servants or tradespeople who held a royal warrant um, among ancestors. If you're very lucky, you should be able to trace the history of someone from an appointment through the details of their career, payment, pension or their warrant and the ordering of goods and services through to them being paid for it. Then a whole range of other sorts of historians use these records. Perhaps on the slightly more academic use, those interested in royal administration, the financial management and auditing, and I already suggested that this is something that perpetually comes up, attempts to record and audit, and also royal protocol and etiquette. Those who are interested in the whole idea of royal patronage to a whole variety of people, and business. You won't get a huge amount on businesses, but again, as we shall see, whilst quite often individuals are warranted for goods or services, um, it may be done via a company, so there's quite a lot of information on, on companies as such. Historians for the arts, there's a certain amount here, as everybody knows, I'm sure. Monarchs were huge patrons of the arts, whether it's painters or architects, musicians, sculptors, so they pop up from time to time. I've already touched on both costume, textile, furniture and furnishings, and obviously the historians of those, as well as food, cookery and diet. And the other thing I haven't mentioned is there are garden records as well, so garden historians and we'll also find these useful. And they are used by biographers and historical novelists, particularly historical novelists who like to base their, their novels around uh, the highest of the land. This is a very good point at which to mention anybody who's interested, this very handy two-volume publication by Sainty and um, Buckholtz. If anybody's um, acquainted with Sainty's, John Sainty's work, he's done a whole string of handbooks to officials. So there's a lot of background history, but there's also alphabetical lists of officials um, in the back. So those are two very, very useful volumes. First, there's the Lord Chamberlain, second Lord Stewards, and with that, a third sort of separate but conjoined little department, which was the, the master of the horse. 
which I'll say a little bit about later. There are also some very handy diagrams in there as to how the whole administration fits together at different times, which is quite complicated. Okay, so let's think a bit about the Lord Chamberlain. Who was he? Well, he was one of the great officers of state. Uh, he was the monarch's spokesman. He was an aristocrat, usually, and generally a important and substantial person. His work was to supervise the, the palace and works around the palace and all the above stairs, so those who served the, the palace as a whole, officials, servants and tradesmen. He also had a role in court ceremonial and entertainment, which led to his role in licensing entertainment and theatres, which is something that people are quite often aware of, and that's what they associate the Lord Chamberlain with. If you see 1950s films, you get the thing that comes up which says it's been passed by the Board of Censors, and that's got the Lord Chamberlain's signature on it. And, and, and that has its origin in his responsibility for entertainments and being fit and proper and such like. This is also a department that's very much associated with the great wardrobe. And I said that will pop up again, though it was financed separately. The, the great wardrobe as a medieval institution and really dealt with the furniture, furnishing and clothes side of things. It was completely swept away in that great modernising year, 1782. A huge amount happened in 1782. It was the year that got rid of the state paper office and set up the foreign departments and foreign department and home department and is in many ways seen as the beginning of sort of modern central administration. At that time, many of the duties, well, in fact, all the duties uh, that had been specifically with the, with, with the wardrobe passed to the Lord Chamberlain. Um, in particular, the Office of the Robes, which had been something that uh, the wardrobe very much kept to itself. Um, records there, accounts and letter books are to be found in LC 12 and 13. There were also other wardrobes that popped up from time to time, as it were. The Privy Wardrobe, which obviously dealt very much with the smaller administration, and Standing and Removing Wardrobes, which may seem rather odd, but the monarch moved around all over the place all the time, and administering that was a massive task, and it was organising that um, was, the, was the task of the removing wardrobe. Um, one oddity that I will mention before I move on, anybody who has looked at the, um, the classes series in, uh, in LC will realise there is a mysterious thing called LC4, which is there completely and totally by mistake. We got the records because they came with a consignment of books at the disbandment of the great wardrobe, they're actually a chancery class. <laughs> Rolls and entry books of recognizance on statute staple. Don't go there. <laughs> this causes much bemusement. Um, I mentioned the theatre, and there are theatre records, which obviously is not in the remit of what we're talking about here and now, but there are, um, there are theatre records in LC7, very interesting they are too. And LC8, which doesn't exist anymore, was original plays, but in the 1920s those were all sent to the British Library. So, I'll call pe people in LC records... The great officials, well, I've already mentioned the Lord Chamberlain, there was a vice-chamberlain, um, treasurer of the chamber, and um, a lot of other people with titles of that sort. And so these, these are all quite important people of the land. Um, then there were lesser officials, and these varied hugely at different times um, and tended to be different as well for a king and for a queen. Um, so just to mention a few, gentlemen of the bedchamber, of the privy chamber, um, the page of the back stairs, the page of the chamber, groom of the bedchamber and the privy chamber, the master of the robes, the cupbearer, the sergeant at arms, the master of ceremonies, the master of the revels, 
watermen, the master of the music and all the musicians, and a surveyor of pictures. That gives you some idea of the scope of what this department dealt with. And I have to add my favourite, who is the peculiar sergeant. Perhaps we shouldn't go there either. Then there are servants and tradespeople, and it's very difficult to separate those out. You might have somebody who was appointed as a royal servant, or that might be a service that was drafted in um, from outside. So the, these are these very much mix up together. And as I've already mentioned, some of the, it might, there might be a company. And if you look at companies, it's worth looking for famous names, people like Aspreys and, and names of that sort. Um, so again, just, just to give you some idea of the scope, physicians and falconers, keepers of hounds, messengers, who were usually known as harbingers, and two of my favourites, the herb straw and the rat killer. <laughs> but then there are also goldsmiths and other jewellers, furriers, dressmakers, wig makers, stay makers, Pin and buckle makers, plumassiers, who did the big plumes, feathers for hats. And then furniture and room accoutrements of all sorts, so cabinet makers, picture framers, for example, providers of carpets, curtains, ornaments, chandeliers. And then a whole range of people like booksellers and newspaper providers, stationers, florists. I could go on forever. Obviously, from this list, you'll see that sports, entertainment, and the arts is quite important. I have already touched on that. So it is worth looking out, as I say, for um, the famous names in the world of the arts. Tradespeople will cover all those areas and more besides. And they operated by a royal warrant, of which the records are in the, in, uh, among the, the LC records. They were either signed um, by the monarch with his sign manual um, or by the Lord Chamberlain. Um, as far as I know, just depending on what was most convenient at the time, there's not a sort of status thing in this. Of course, if you had a royal warrant, um, that made you for life. So to look in a little bit more detail then at some of the Lord Chamberlain's records, um, and the first ones here are the special events, and, and these are some of the records that um, people love, love most of all, I think. Um, the special events are the coronations, the marriages, um, the baptisms. Oh, I've conveniently forgotten the funerals, which is quite interesting. <laughs> I've mentioned funerals, but, and of course the funerals. But they also have things like Queen Victoria's um, Golden and Diamond Jubilees. And they include among them a few, but very few, national figures, um, most particularly um, the funerals of the Duke of Wellington and Lord Nelson. There's a huge amount of detail within these, costed, um, all nicely costed, materials, goods, descriptions of robes and liveries, how the altar might be decked, what the coffin looked like, descriptions of a catafalque, etc., etc., and a lot of details of um, what tradespeople provided. Um, particularly with the ones in the 19th century, you may well get things like letters and guest lists, orders of services, just everything, basically, around these events. Um, they run from 1500 to 1911, which is a very nice broad period. Um, the earliest being out of the funeral of Edmund, son of Henry VII, um, up to the coronation of George V. Then there's a class uh, LC6 of lesser events. Um, so levies and drawing rooms, balls, concerts and garden parties. I'd say in themselves these records are not so interesting, but what they do have um, is a lot of detail about etiquette and protocol, um, orders in which people would proceed um, to be introduced and announced, um, the sort of dress to be worn and that kind of thing. I'd like to mention one that I came across once, which was rather charming, a ball given for children in 1855. 
and those happy days for Victoria and Albert before Albert's death in 1861. Let's look at a couple. This is the record of the coronation of Elizabeth I in 1559. It seemed a proper, proper thing to start with as we are celebrating the 450th anniversary of Victoria's uh, coronation. I'm terribly sorry. Elizabeth I, yes. Right. Um, the very first item I'd like to quote in full because in a way it encapsulates everything to do with detail uh, that these records contain. So you can see from the bit down the side, these are um, robes of purple velvet for the Queen's Majesty. So this is a description of what she herself will wear at her coronation. And it's uh, an order to Walter Fish for making of a robe of purple velvet containing one kirtle with a train furred with powdered ermine edged about the skirts. The rest lined with sarsnet, which was um, a very fine silk that was used for lining material, with a surcoat and a mantle of the same velvet, and mantle lace of silk and gold with buttons and tassels of silk and gold furred with powdered ermine. Price the making thereof, 57 shillings and fourpence. So huge amount of detail. You've got the person and you've got the cost. And in a way, that encapsulates what we come across again and again and again through both sorts um, of records. This one's a funeral. I'll try and get the person right this time. It's the funeral of um, George IV, 1830. That's a much more straightforward document. All the details here of what the pages were, were to wear. You'll notice at the top, that's J&J Weston of Old Bond Street. So a typical example of where you get um, a company receiving the commission. The next are really, I suppose, the sort of meat of the... Uh, Lord Chamberlain's records, both of administration and accounting. And they, they fall in several series. Uh, registers in LC3, they cover 1641 to 1875. First of all, the registers to correspondence. All the correspondence is in LC1, and there are massive amounts of correspondence, all in nice sort of sections. Of course, inevitably, there are a whole load of miscellaneous ones as well. Uh, so the registers to that correspondence in LC3, and also any letters that might turn up in LC2. There are also establishment books, um, which list officials and services admissions to appointments, salary livery and pension books, and um, sign manual warrants. So um, a good meaty series there. LC5, miscellaneous. And it is a bit of a nightmare. It has just got so much jammed into it, they obviously shoved everything in that they couldn't find anywhere else to put. It does cover a broad period, though, altogether, 1516 to 1920. There are some good series, though. Original and copy warrants, again, so more warrants. Entry books of warrants, again, details of salaries, allowances, the delivery and receipt of goods. Um, there are also the warrant books of two important officials, the, the treasurer of the chamber and the controller of the accounts of the treasurer of the chamber, <laughs> um, which I think is a bit like the powder on the noses of the lasers of Court King Caractacus. The controller post was set up in 1690 um, as one of the many bids to control household expenditure. And then there's LC9, which is another uh, very hefty class of accounts, more miscellaneous. 1483, that actually starts, goes on to 1901. In many ways, it has the most important of the um, accounting and financial records um, because, among other things, it has the um, long series of yearly and quarterly accounts for the Great Wardrobe from 1516 up to its disbandment in 1782, and also two series of bill books, um, which give a nice lot of details. So that altogether, those cover a long period. The bill books um, between the cover 1667 and 1793. 
Also, LC9's got some of the accounts of some of the specific offices, um, which are rather interesting, particularly the dual office, which runs from 1660 to 1782, and um, again, the office of the robes, 1783 to 1803. So good meaty series there. And then there are two further series of bill books in LC10 and 11, which take the series right up to 1900. And then there are two specific series that cover the office of the robes. They're 19th century, starting in 1830. One is accounts and the other is uh, letter books. Um, this is one of the great wardrobe copy warrants. This is page 4, 1626 to 7. And it is for the provision of all sorts of goods, so trappings, saddles, etc., for the master of the horse. So, again, you can see all that, all that detail about what was provided, shape, size, colour, etc. This is one of my favourite documents. This is a warrant um, for my dear friend, livery for my dear friend, Mrs Elizabeth Stubbs, who was the rat killer in ordinary to his majesty at the time, George II, 1735. And this is actually for livery for her, apart from being rather fun. It, it's quite interesting because it does show, even for quite a small thing like livery for a rat killer, the sort of bureaucracy of it all, all the people that had to sign this, signed someone else to pass it on, someone else to say it was okay, someone else to pay it, etc. Next one, I've, I've, I've chosen partly because I, I, like the, uh, I like the illustrated capital at the top. It's a bird making off with an acorn, I think. This is one of the great wardrobe yearly accounts, and they have a great tendency for capitals to be decorated in that way. This one's 1624, 19th of January, 21 James I to be exact. And it's all for the provision of velvets, laces, satins and silks, so very fine, fine goods. Um, the one right at the bottom, Edmund Harrison, um, who is an embroiderer, um, so he is um, going to be paid for all manner of um, workmanship in embroidering, embroidering the, 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 the same, being curiously wrought with His Majesty's arms and fine Venice gold, which I rather like. Now this one is another page of the same document, and the reason I've included it is, this, this is for livery, payments for livery. And if you see there, talking about looking out for the famous, uh, livery for Inigo Jones, who at that time was the architect designing the Queen's house at um, Greenwich, the Queen being Anne of Denmark. So it's not easy to spot these famous names because they'll just pop up in among all the others. But it's quite nice when you do. Now the next one is um, a great wardrobe bill book of 1760 to 61. This is for payment to Sarah Green, um, an embroideress. Of course, one thing that's interesting in this is, as opposed to many sorts of records, um, you get huge numbers of women involved right through, Some, sometimes in quite unusual things. I found one who provided fishing tackle to Queen Victoria, which is a bit different. This particular page is all for embroidering the badges for trumpeters and the kettle drummers. So this was obviously um, all provision made for uh, the officer, the master of the music. And then I think the last one in this little lot is on the mistress of the robes, because it's Victoria, not Elizabeth. Mistress of the robes letter book. And the reason I've chosen that is that, apart, well, two reasons. Firstly, um, again, apart from individuals, um, lots, of, lots of companies, lots of businesses there. Just the second one down, Cayley Brothers, 
That's one, Rogers and Co. But a huge amount of goods, again, um, provided. There's some payment for silk mercers, milliners, lace and mantilla providers, hosiers, glovers, shoemakers, perfumers, and plumassiers. Um, and at the very bottom, um, there's um, payment for messengers' disbursements, because underpinning all this, of course, was an awful lot of people carting things around and running around, and they all had to be ordered, accounted for, paid and what have you. Before I move on to Lord Steward, I'll mention uh, just a couple of other things to do with um, the Lord Chamberlain. And these are two very, very handy nominal indexes if you do happen to be looking for ancestors. Now, you've got to be lucky because they're very specific as to dates. But the, the first one is actually part of a document. It's in LC3. Um, stroke one, but it is a list of Charles I's household, and that's interesting as well because uh, I've already said most of the um, most of the records are from Charles II onwards. Um, so if you are looking for someone in the 1640s, you just might be lucky. And I actually recommended this just to someone the other day who found what they were looking for. So that's that's rather nice. Now these aren't on the um, online catalogue, but they are on the paper lists. Um, the second one is an index called the Glen Cross Index, and for the life of me, I can't find out why it's called the Glen Cross Index. It's actually an early exercise in the 1970s in computer indexing. Um, what it does is covers more than 40 pieces in LC5, which, if you remember, was that great mishmash of um, miscellanea. So, again, you just might be lucky, and it's got all the names that will turn up um, in those pieces. Um, again, it's not in the online catalogue, but it's in, it's in the class list. Right, so that's really the Lord Chamberlain. Now let's move on to the Lord Steward. So, who was he? Uh, well, he was the monarch's steward and really saw that everything was, um, was sort of tickety-boo around the, uh, the person of the monarch, that everybody did what they were meant to do and behaved in a proper way doing it. He's the supervisor of what happens below stairs, so the officials and servants there. Um, will deal with the tradesmen um, supplying the palace rather than the monarch. And the remit was everything to do with the preparation of um, food and drink and also um, a lot of related activities such as around the provision of fuel and lighting and that kind of thing. Um, it was also responsible for the chapel's royal, the gardens and the grounds. Now, a couple, of, um, a couple of other things to note about the, the, the Lord Steward. He operated through something called the Board of Green Cloth. It's called that because um, back in its medieval origins, it was on a table covered with such a cloth. The transactions of the department took place. The main officials there were a cofferer and four, later six clerks. And actually, the Lord Steward's records are really um, sort of those, those of the board. Although it became less and less important as an institution, um, what, I'm actually, I, I suddenly realised I didn't quite know when it had been abolished, so um, I googled it and found it wasn't actually abolished until 2004, which I find quite interesting. Again, a huge amount of detail, as we will see, um, the daily expenditure to provide the household um, paying for the same and all its, its minutiae. The other interesting thing about the Lord Steward was that he did have, a, albeit a minor, a legal and judicial role. Um, that's because um, he was responsible for the good government of the household servants. Um, it dealt with small debt and minor disputes, um, and also infractions of the peace around what was known as the verge. 
And the verge was a 12-mile area around the monarch's residence, wherever that should happen to be, at any given time. If these cases involved household members as such, um, the records are in LS13, a, a series I shall say a little bit more about later. But if they concerned other people, uh, they're in the palace court records, which are the um, PALA letter code, P-A-L-A. One interesting thing about this department is that there is more evidence here of attempts to curb expenditure and make it more accountable. Um, and for that reason, the Lord Steward's records often cover the whole household. So you will find um, within them a lot of references to members of the Lord Chamberlain's department. Um, and again, the catalogue is the place to look for all the details of this. Vice versa, there are very few instances. You will find very little impingement of the Lord Stewards on the Lord Chamberlain's department. So very much connected with the way these records were organised and produced at different times um, were, were three fairly significant years. One was 1761, which point each office, and I shall say a bit more in a minute about the offices within the department, um, began to keep its own accounts, ledgers, salary and expenditure books. Um, so this is an attempt to sort of tighten up on administration. And at that time as well, accounting was placed under the Treasury. Um, so that central body of providing finance had a much more important role from then on. Um, and also um, a civil list of salaries and other expenses was devised. And connection with the royal household, the civil list is still something we, we hear about from time to time, um, who's on the civil list, how much they get every year. And that's information that's, that's published now. Um, actually, the first civil list act was 1698. So this wasn't absolutely new. Again, 1782 is important. As I said before, a year of modernizing, streamlining, and reform. Um, at that point, the cofferers and the clerks went. And very much the Lord Steward's department was itself recognized from that point. They were taken over by a paymaster and clerks of the household, rather than clerks of the board of green cloth. There was also some more reform of the civil list at that time. And in 1816, again related to the civil list, um, an auditor was appointed to examine tradesmen's bills and prepare statements for the Treasury. So you can see that tightening up again on auditing. I mentioned the offices. And the whole Lord Stewart's Department was divided into various offices with it, dealing with various areas. These varied enormously from time to time. The most important, though, and the one that was always there was the kitchen. I realised when I'd done this and I was looking over my notes that in the other ones I mentioned, I forgot to mention the cellar, which is most important, and I feel regarded as the, the second most important, um, headed by a gentleman of the cellar. So, sorry, not on that list. I thought I must mention it. So others were the spicery, the oilery, the grocery, the dairy, the buttery, the pantry, the bakehouse, the pastry, poultry, salsery, where sauces were made, the ewery, which dealt with everything connected with water supplies, and the napery, um, which was the linen-keeping department. And then there were the ones sort of slightly, as it were, outside the building, if you like, the bigger picture. The wood yard, which was the coal yard at some at some stages. The hall, the scullery, the carriage, and the aviary, as usually known, which is the stables. The Lord Steward's Department and the Office of the Master of the Horse sort of shared responsibility for the stables between them. Um, and then there was something that was known as the Acatry, which is 
department that dealt with purchasing, purchasing the goods um, and calling in goods for people who had contracts with the Lord Steward's Department, but it also means the, the rooms, literally the management of the rooms in which all those goods uh, were kept. There are some rather strange terms which have very specific meanings used in, in these departments, um, in this department, uniquely. The first of these were purveyors. Now, purveyors um, originally went out from the court and bought supplies in for the household. Um, they commanded, commanded transport for the carriage of these. In 1660, so with the restoration, the royal prerogative of purveyance was given up, mostly, I suspect, because um, it had been um, subject to quite a lot of corruption in the past. Um, and that was in return for a parliamentary grant for life, which was quite nice for someone to get. Um, and the court now bought from merchants at prices that were agreed in an annual contract with them. The other word that pops up um, a lot is establishments. Um, and these were begun just after the uh, restoration in 1662. They comprised a list of fixed charges and allowances which regulated every predictable or ordinary expense, so all the sort of day-to-day -day things that you would expect. I suppose what we call a sort of running costs now. Extraordinary expenditure, which was the other sort of expenditure, that had to be scrutinised by one of the clerks before it could be allowed into the accounts, and extraordinary accounts were submitted in what was called a creditor. And in the creditor, the tradesperson rendered their account and craved payment. Um, these records are in LS8, and you get the, the craving with all the details of what's, what's being craved, <laughs> or payment that's being craved, on the right-hand side with a note of the payment um, on the left-hand side. The other um, term that crops up a lot here is board wages. And so these were payments in lieu of food and drink allowances earlier on, very much literally a food and drink allowance and that was commuted to, to a payment um, and that was for all household people across both departments uh, whilst they were on household duties. Um, so the series of below stairs accounting, again um, a lot of the meat is here just as it is with the uh, Lord Chamberlain's department. There's a lot of interweaving of series here and interdependence on one another again um, as before. The controller of the household accounts, um, obviously one of the principal accounts, they're in LS1. Um, they run from 1640 to 1761, which is quite a nice series, and have all the ordinary expenditure based on the establishments, which I've already mentioned. Um, they were rendered quarterly and divided up by the offices. Um, then there is a series of civil list salaries in LS2. Um, obviously those start in 1761 when the proper civil list um, accounting first um, turned up, run to 1854. Um, a series of ledgers in LS3, rather similar to the equivalent in LC. Salaries, allowances, bills paid, um, general ledgers, continuing for the, the ordinary um, expenditure beyond what were previously in LS1, these. Um, and they're on themselves continued right up to 1814 in, in LS13. And they are a combination of the individual ledgers for each of the offices. Uh, then there's a rather strange series called the Pedis Parcellarum, which is LS4. Um, runs from 1660 to 1761. That's an analysis of the expenditure of each office, um, done half monthly and monthly and yearly. Um, it literally means the feet of parcels. 
um, what happened was parcels of records of consumptions uh, were brought to the board from the various offices in the form of indentures. Um, one of the clerks um, put that information into ledgers and then that together into what's here in LS4. Huge amount of bureaucracy again, yeah. rather as, as we've seen previously. These are often as well subdivided as to type. Um, so you'll get headings that come under things like meat and wines, eggs, lamps, and a whole variety um, of others. Writing services, that's another one mentioned. And after those, um, there are headings for wages and pensions. This is all summarised at the end. And this summary, the cofferer submitted to the exchequer um, for one of the main exchequer series, the pipe office declared accounts um, in E351. So this really was taking this expenditure into the mainstream um, of central government accounting. Auditor statements of accounts um, in LS6. Slightly uninspiring set of records, I have to say. Just run from 1816 to 1840 and will render quarterly. Um, in LS7, you get examinations of um, tradesmen's bills, and these are good because you've got an awful lot of detail in them. Um, unfortunately, they only run from 1825 to 49, um, but they're rendered quarterly and cover, say, a huge range of commodities and services. Um, I said here from candles to postage stamps and from filling ice wells to sweeping chimneys and just about everything else you can think of in between. And then the last of these accounting series are the creditors, which I've already mentioned a bit, in LS8. Um, a nice long series running from 1642 to 1854. Um, those were sometimes divided into um, household, kitchen separately because the kitchen was so important and incidental, which is nice and vague and we quite worked out what came under incidental. Um, presumably things they couldn't fit into any particular office. And again, there's a huge amount of detail, I've said here this time, from beer to brushes, services of the pewterer to, the, to get services of the car taker who procured the carts for transport. Um, this is one of the general ledgers in LS3, and it's for June 1770. It's nice because you can see there is an awful lot of detail there. Um, those main headings, I say with other details underneath them, are for tallow, lamps, tea, and coffee pops in under tea as well, for washing, for confections, um, for butter and cheese. Um, and that's only half the page. I tended to take half pages so that they came out nice and big and, big and clear and um, with, with all the, the costs. And, and just to take one, to give some of the details underneath, which is the confections. These are for lemonade, water cakes, cusset, which I take to be custard, jelly, raisins, sponge biscuits, wafers, and desserts. Um, so really, this is just to note the massive amount of detail that, that you're getting in these. The fees that went to the different offices of quite interesting because they're included here. You'll see them at the bottom of all of these. So an item there. It was the fee for the cofferer, his deputy, and for the civil list. So backhanders all round, I suspect. This is a craving. A craving for confection. Sorry, obviously it's that. <clears throat> it's from a credit, the creditor for Hampton Court for 1797, page for June. It's, it's actually um, it's a craving and payment to John Barker, whose name you can see right at the top, uh, for the account of the Prince of Orange, who was presumably on a visit at the time. And it says John Barker craveth allowance for, and I haven't listed them all, but um, just to give a flavour, craveth an allowance for 12 compots served to His Majesty's House at Hampton Court. 
orange and lemon chips, sweet meats, apricots and peaches, burnt almonds, pistachio nuts. So you've got all the details there and what it cost and what he's asking for, which is 19 pounds, nine shillings and a penny. And then on the, um, and on the other side, he's got his money and he's signed for it. So he's received his 19 pounds, nine shillings and a penny. Right, to move on to the kitchen, which, as I say, is one of the most important aspects of um, the Lord Steward's records. I have to say, among my absolute favourites um, in all of these, there should be a series like this, which is LS9, for all the offices, but unfortunately, huge amounts of it have not survived. Um, but fortunately, the kitchen, the kitchen has, which is it's the most important, is, is good. Um, it was the, by far the largest and the best organised um, office, and it had in many ways control over all the others and drew constantly on their services and provisions. Uh, now, its records are divided into four main types. Um, first of all, there's what are called diets, which run from 1661 to 1761, and they are not what we understand by the word. They're actually daily lists of provisions, as fixed by the establishments. If you remember, the establishment said exactly what would be um, provided um, uh, for all ordinary um, expenditure. Um, has a lot of detail. It's right down to numbers and the weights that were provided to the various tables of the household. The next big series are the ledgers, 1660-1729, and whilst many entries are concerned with the payment of the board wages, um, which um, seemed to come under the kitchen, although it's so general, um, there's also a nice wide range of goods and services, this time I've mentioned from pheasant keeping to bucket mending. Um, then there are the bills of fare, 1660-1729, um, which have the full details of the meals served and to whom and where they were served, so you get all the different tables of the household, which is rather nice. Um, and then some returns of information called mensils, 1761 to 1831. Um, they're monthly tabular returns of daily expenditure, so um, this is just all a conglomeration of information. And some articles have separate series, and again, it's a bit odd to me to how they decided which to put under specific headings. The ones that keep turning up are coals and brushes, which obviously something terribly important. Right, so let's look, at, let's look at some. This is the diet for 1682, and really I've only put it there because it's, it's quite a nice, quite a nice heading with its nice swirl at the bottom. It says, this is record taken in the office of the kitchen for the Lord King, for diet expenses for the Lord King, Queen and family living at Windsor. It says for the month of June 1682. I've next taken a page from that diet. I have to say these are among some of those difficult records to, to read. It's actually for the 2nd and 3rd of June. It's a mishmash of Latin and English, which is slightly confusing. So you've got those dates at the top in, in Latin. Um, but then you'll notice quite a lot of the goods are in, are in English, fortunately. Uh, so some of the things I've picked out complete with their um, weights, amounts and things like that, um, all in rather spidery Roman numerals, which, which don't help. So there's bacon you might spot there, rabbits, pheasants, cod, whiting, lobsters, basically um, the sort of meaty poultry things are there, and all the fish, they eat a lot of fish. I think the sole as well there. And something called less, which I've never been able to find out what that is. If you look it up in the OED, it isn't there, I regret to say. It gives totals for 
um, here the king, the queen, and I think it's the chapel, yes, that um, are specifically listed. And at the top on this side, you've got a listing for, rather oddly, beef, malt, I'm sure it's malt, and veal. Not among the, not among the easiest of records to, to use, but as you can see, the detail is enormous that's there. This is a bill of fare. Um, it's actually for the coronation of James II, 23rd of April, 1685. I'll read out some of it. The heading at the top says, It is for the table of the Lord's spiritual and temporal, the judges, barons of the sink ports, king's council, Lord Mayor and Alderman, and the heralds. And then you get these various columns for what served at the different tables. And they read... Less dishes down this side of the table, great dishes going inside next them. Great dishes going down the middle of the table, great dishes next them. Less dishes down this side of the table, which I rather like. So what this side of the table is meant to be, it's not entirely clear to me. There are a massive number of goodies there, fish, meat, desserts um, of all sorts um, but just to give you a flavour if you'll excuse the pun let me bring across the the top line across the columns um, so the first one says um, lamb stones hot the next is sirloin beef la royal hot jelly in 18 glasses neat's tongues five cold and prawns cold and um, you've got a similar thing all the way down. So a real picture of what was consumed on that occasion. So you know, massive amounts of detail. Mo moving on to the gardens, three series of, of, of garden records, all quite straightforward and virtually all 19th, 19th century. So LS10 is a, um, a series of garden books um, for a lot of detail in the administration of the Royal Gardens. 1796 to 1817, there is a nice series of plans in it, um, LS10, piece 10, um, for, among other things, a peach house and a cherry house, a pinery and a, and a vinery. Um, it's rather a pity that they are undated. LS11 um, is Bills, 1816 to 1854, which is abstracts of quarterly accounts. Um, it also comprises a creditor for the garden, um, there's a lot of detail there, plants, equipment, um, wages, um, though not very good for individual names. And lastly, LS12 is the examinations of the bills that are in LS11, so running through a very similar date. And just to look at a couple, I rather like this one. It's a garden book for Windsor for 1806, and it's a complaint about the food provided, the fruit provided. I'm sorry to inform you that Mr Rice came to the Board of Green Cloth the day before yesterday to complain that the service of fruit for the Win from the Windsor Gardens is not only very short but very bad, that the equerries seldom get any and that what is served to the royal tables is very indifferent. Um, and it goes on to suggest um, down here that um, if you've got real problems, apply to your brother for assistance from the Royal Gardens at Kew and Kensington, and also to Mr Padley at Hampton Court. All the usual service to St James's being discontinued, a deficiency for the Windsor service, is, must appear unaccountable. So I rather like that one. Don't know what the outcome was. I guess the fruit improved one way or another.
Um, and this I've just included. It's as simple as it's an inventory. But again, it's detail, huge amounts of detail. Um, you know, it amazes me that the um, royal household should um, bother to stick on an inventory um, an old 13-step ladder. To this kind of detail. So there's ladders and barrows and water pots and shears and forks just in that little bit, just in that little sample there. And again, this is from Hampton Court. Um, it was in an inventory taken in 1817. Now to end up with, called the most miscellaneous of all the miscellanea, LS13, which is just bits and bobs from everywhere. Uh, I've said a, a real serendipity. This is. Often the incomplete series um, for the various offices um, are there. And I mentioned earlier that the legal records from the legal jurisdiction of the Lord Steward are also there. Obviously, to get all the details and the flavour of it, you need to look on the online catalogue. Um, but I have, do mention three sections that rather sort of stand out. There's some very handy things called check rolls, um, which are quarterly enrolments of below-stairs servants. So again, good for people looking for names. And those exist for the reigns of James I, Charles II, and then William III to George II. The contracts that were made with individual purveyors of goods, which are quite a useful set, and particularly as they run, albeit with gaps, from 1669 to 1812, um, and then last of all, the establishments, which I've now mentioned a number of times, these um, fixed charges and allowances for ordinary expenditure. Um, they run from 1662 to 1812. Um, they later carried on into a treasury um, series in T35. And they're very elaborate, which I think is quite a nice way to end. So they're, they're beautiful documents and an indication of how serious this kind of auditing and accounting was, um, is that the monarch was required to sign each page. There is the sign manual of Charles II, um, because this is the establishment for 1663 for the Queen's household, starting off with the, the dishes that will be served for the Queen's breakfast. Um, the Queen then being Catherine of Braganza. So it has the allowances there for breakfast, dinner and supper. And I've only taken that very top bit of the page. So to show the sign manual and to show the elaborate capital, um, which is commonplace, they are as elaborate as this generally. But it goes on to list below various um, officials in descending order of importance um, of the household. On that, I think, quite splendid note. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 28th of May 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.